Hey folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and this is the show where we build an entire campaign for you from scratch, and we're well into it this season, working on our campaign for the Fallout role-playing game. If you're interested in checking out the available supplemental materials for Fallout, check out the Modifius Entertainment website, M-O-D-I-P-H-I-U-S dot net. Okay, so we are going to build today, as promised, but this isn't going to be our usual style of build, and that's because we've got a lot of things we need to clear up and clean up. And I need to start by apologizing for last week. I got a number of emails and tweets thanking me for the scenario that finally, we think, got rid of Garson Tactical. That being said, it was also noted that not only was this the shortest regular episode we've done for this show in two seasons, but it's also the first time we haven't really given a non-combative option for something this big. First off, thanks for reaching out, and I do appreciate that you liked what we did. For me, look, I'm always going to be my own worst critic, and I realized when I was recording it that I did not like it. And it's for two reasons, but the one that matters is that I didn't give a second option for dealing with the Garson situation. So before we start building anything else this week, I've got a couple of thoughts for an alternative, so we're going to stick a pin in that thought for just a moment. On that Garson tactical note, I also realized when I was going over some of the campaign notes that I'd had Chip, remember Chip, saying his holotape something about getting things stolen from Garson's headquarters in Clayton, but we placed the headquarters at Jefferson Barracks. That's a continuity error on my part, and I usually do a better job of quality controlling that. In this case, I don't know, I just let it slip through the cracks, and that's my bad. So if you haven't run that yet, you've got time to make the adjustment. I, for one, am in that camp, so my group isn't going to get it with a continuity error. I got one more thing here real quick. When the group did the iRobotics job two weeks ago, I mentioned before we built that out that we were going to have two options for the group laid out and we do the second after the iRobotics job. Yeah, obviously I didn't put one in there. So we're going to build that one out this week as well. And if you already ran the iRobotics job or if you ran something else instead, you'll have an official scenario you can run. We also have the thread concerning that building of synths the group ran into when they chased down the synths at the Lent Brewery, and your group is probably itching to check that out. So, like I said, this week's build is going to be about tying up some loose ends. So, let's get to it. Let's start with the thoughts behind a non-confrontational approach to dealing with Garson Tactical. The first thing we need to keep in mind is that they've been basically hunting our group for quite some time now, and a non-violent solution of any kind is going to be tricky at best to pull off. But we're always trying to find ways to do this, or at least my group is always trying to find ways to do this, so let's see if we can't figure something out. Now, if you've got yourself a group that sees attacking Garson as the best possible solution, obviously you don't need what we're doing here. But I am the type of GM who tries to keep a number of possible scenarios in my back pocket because one never knows when one's group is going to go off the beaten path and you're going to need something to throw in on the fly. So we'll go back to just before the group marches down to Jefferson Barracks since they'll need to do some prep work for this. You can choose whichever contact of theirs you want them to use. I mean, there's Victor, obviously, but by now, Melanie Zombrowski would also be a viable option for them to use. Also, if you've created someone the group uses as a contact for jobs, they may also very well be an option here. Just depends. 
The entire idea here is that somebody with a little bit of stroke is going to need to reach out to a contact from Garson to basically demand parlay. Now, this is one of those things where you should have the group work out a message of some type, since we should really be making them work for it instead of us just deciding on our own whether or not what they want to have happen happens. The basic idea is that they need to offer something in exchange for a truce between the two groups. So I would suggest you go get yourself a beverage and maybe a snack or take a bio break because this is probably going to take a bit. Let your group discuss what they want the message to entail. Now, we obviously don't want to give them all night since I know from experience that there are some players out there who will take all night to make sure the statement is worked out to the letter. Oh, my God. Trust me, I need to tell you the story of the guy I played D&D with who took a half an hour to work up a 75-word sentence for his wish. Oh my God. Maybe we'll do that another time. Once the group's got their proposal worked up, have one player be the primary, have one player assist, and then let's roll. We want charisma plus speech difficulty five. However, due to the animosity towards the group by Garson at this point, we're extending the consequence range to 18 to 20. So let's check results. If the roll fails and there's at least one complication, Garson is going to respond with the snarkiest, most rudely worded note you can think of, and they'll note how offended they are that the group would even think they've got the right to a truce. So obviously work this up to fit how your group's been handling things up to this point. If the roll fails and there are no complications, Garson will respond with a professional sounding note that will state something along the lines of, while we appreciate your willingness to discuss the possibility of a truce at this point, the amount of caps offered for you exceeds any benefits possible through a truce. And since we're aware you do not possess the caps necessary to counter this offer, we must decline your offer. Again, customize that to fit your group. Oh, and if by chance your group just happens to have 50,000 caps on hand, we could argue they do have enough to counter the offer Garson has. We're not getting into who that's from, but if the group wants to basically bankrupt themselves for their freedom, they most certainly can do so. And if you want to give them a hand, Melanie Zombrowski and Victor are willing to front them 15,000 caps each to help, though they'll be doing several jobs for each of them to pay that back. Again, that's up to you. Let's keep checking results. If the roll succeeds and there's at least one complication, Garson will respond that while certain portions of the note offended some members of the leadership team, they are willing to discuss a truce between the groups. However, they demand that the meeting take place at their compound. We'll play this out momentarily, but I need to mention here that the complication will lead to the difficulty levels for roles during the negotiations to be one higher than normal due to the nature of the offense felt by the leadership group. Of course, if the role succeeds with no complications, they receive a very professional note from Garson welcoming the opportunity to discuss a truce. The note will even suggest that the group pick the location so long as it's not Diamond Pass as they do not have permission to be inside the walls. They ask that the group send their response as soon as possible. This, as expected, is the best possible outcome since they get a neutral site for the meet and no penalties to roles made during the meeting. So... We now need to figure out where this neutral site should be for the meeting. Since Diamond Pass is out and Victor will tell the group that even he can't get that prohibition lifted, they'll need to think long and hard. So let's check a couple options I can think of off the top of my head. There's the dome. It's not ideal for this since it's an enclosed space. Plus, the sheer number of people within said space is large enough that having their meeting would be darn near impossible. Lemp Brewery. 
Melanie Zembrowski really doesn't want to host Garson personnel at her place of business. She's got a few issues with them going way back, so while she's not going to be rude about it, she is absolutely not interested. Jesse Arnott slash Barnabas O'Reilly, depending on which one is alive in your game. Not a chance. While the offices would provide the levels of privacy needed for such a meeting, he is absolutely positively not interested. Again, he has no desire to bring the very group he's had issues with in the past into his place of business. There is one option the group can use, and they may not think of it. The old Nuka-Cola factory. I've mentioned this a couple of times during the course of the season, but what is in the real world, the Anheuser-Busch Brewery, is, in the game world anyway, the old Midwestern plant for Nuka-Cola. It's been abandoned since the bombs dropped, so there's nobody here. The group would obviously need to check it out to see if they could find a decent spot, and they will find several. And that got me thinking, what would or should the group be looking for in the perfect meeting spot? Again, they're going to want a spot that's private so that neither side can, in theory, hide someone to take pot shots at people. They're also going to want a spot where individuals can't be set up in sniper or ambush positions to take people out before, during, or immediately after the meeting. So if they use the Nuka-Cola factory, they're going to be looking for a space like that. And we can say there's a cafeteria or a large conference room that would work for the actual meeting. That being said, there will be all kinds of hidey holes that people could be placed in for the above mentioned activities. So in my mind anyway, there's only one place that's going to work, and that's the Twisted Tap. Sylvia is not going to be overly nuts about hosting this meeting, but Melanie and Victor will be able to convince her that it's in everyone's best interest to do so. And so long as Garson and the group agree to the rules concerning attacking each other on the property, she will agree to be the hostess, provided they meet early in the day when there aren't any customers there. Oh, and in case you haven't figured it out to this point, yes, the Twisted Tap is a lot like the Continental from the John Wick movies. And yes, that's where I stole the idea. Sue me, it's what we do. <laughs> For the record, Garson will agree to this and will give the names of five members of the leadership team that will be attending the meeting. I'll let you name them because I don't have five names handy at the moment. Plus, this is one of those things that'll work best if you flavor it to your campaign. But before we get to the meeting, let's wrap up the scenario if by chance the group can afford to pay Garson. One would assume the group's going to be smart enough to request the truce in writing, and in the case of my group, they're also going to insist that it be posted all over the city so everybody knows. Garson will suggest the meeting take place at the remains of their old facility in Dogtown, which we outlined in one of the very first build sessions we did for the campaign. You decide when the meeting can take place and have the exchange go down. We're not going to write that out because it's a straightforward exchange of caps for papers. Rather than count out all the caps, Garson will bring a hand scale like some fishermen use to hang their fish on to weigh, and they'll weigh the container the caps are in, or containers depending. They won't tell the group that, so if they decide to try some trickery, they'll be found out. Maybe. You can have them pull a charisma plus speech check difficulty 5 to see if they could pull it off, and if they succeed, that's good for them, though I wouldn't count on the truce lasting all that long once Garson realized they've been hosed. Failure leads to an immediate gunfight, and it'll be two Garson for each group member, and the stats are those Brotherhood of Steel Knight stats on page 383. Oh, and if the group had a complication with their success earlier, extend the complication range of that roll they make for shenanigans to 19 to 20. But since our groups don't have the caps, right, this meeting is going to be the most likely scenario. Plus, my group's not likely to pay for this. They'd rather talk their way out of it. So let's lay out the face-to-face -face meeting. 
The Garson team will arrive promptly at the given meeting time. Think military efficiency. And if you understand that, you're going to get what I'm saying. If not, there's another term you can use for it. Anal retentive. Yeah. They'll sit across from the group since it should be a rectangular setup with the Garson personnel on one side and the group on the other. If the group chooses to have members wait outside, they'll note Garson brought just enough people to have one person on site for each member of the group. If that means there aren't five, make those adjustments in the earlier statements. Remember, I have eight in my group, so everything I do is basically built off of eight. Again, I'm not going to write the script out for this word for word. The idea here is that Garson is basically tired of chasing down the group, especially since they haven't had a lot of success doing it, and that lack of success is beginning to hurt their business through negative word that's getting out amongst their potential and their current clients. So regardless of what the success was on the earlier role, they really just want to end this and allow everyone to go about their business. And to reference back to last week's episode, they will admit that they use some synths in their company. However, those are limited to their headquarters only, and they're willing to sign an affidavit to that effect. So this is a straight up charisma and barter check for the group. One can lead it with another providing assistance. The base target is a three, but if they've got that complication hanging over their heads, make it a four. Also, if that complication is out there, there's a member of the Garson team that makes it clear that they don't agree with making a deal. And if it were up to me, we just kill you and be done with this. Obviously, that person's going to get shut down as they talk, but it's something to keep in mind while this all plays out. So long as they succeed, the Garson ordeal is over. They'll sign the agreement, Garson will agree to have copies posted by sundown, and they'll shake hands and go their merry way. Even a complication won't affect this. It'll just mean that someone, and if there was a complication factoring in before, it'll be the same one, doesn't want to see this happen and will be very vocal about it, though they'll be shushed down by the other Garson leaders that are there. If they fail, it's not the end of the world. Again, even a complication with a fail isn't the end. It just means that the individual who's against this is beginning to make some headway with their colleagues. At this point, it's going to take some serious work. So we need to do this again. Charisma plus barter, difficulty five. And if they had a complication at any point in the proceedings, the complication range is 19 to 20. Again, if they succeed, this ends. Failure means the naysayer has convinced Garson that this was a complete waste of time and they get up and storm out. If there's a complication, there's going to be a gunfight outside the Twisted Tap with Garson taking the first shots. Now, this will have implications down the line, but those aren't important at the moment. So we'll wrap this idea up here and move on to the next one. Okay, so I mentioned two weeks ago when the group took the iRobotics job that there was an alternate job that could work out. If you'll remember, the whole situation with Chip was kind of left unresolved. Now, for those who don't remember, the TLDR on that is that Chip was the source Victor sent them to about synths and possible sources for them. They went to the church where they were ambushed and found the real Chip dead. That's where they picked up the holotape from Chip where he basically conceded he knew he was walking into a trap. Victor will be able to provide them with some information he's been able to pick up from sources, but it's not much. According to his informants, the church is owned by a Teresa Lynch. Victor knows who she is, but he doesn't believe she's the one responsible. As he'll note, she doesn't really work in his line of work. She's a, a nurse of sorts, providing medical attention to those who can't afford it. Victor knows that because he's been funneling caps her way through non-traceable sources for some time so that she can afford the supplies she needs to tend to the sick and wounded. 
He wasn't aware that she owned anything, so the fact that she's supposedly the owner of a church where an informant of his was killed is a bit concerning. So, he'll give them the address of Teresa's clinic, which is actually a couple of blocks west of the church. In the real world, it's a mixed area of residential and business, and we'll say for the record that Teresa had some help cleaning out an old store that she now uses as a clinic. He will inform them that they need to meet with her during the day as she's got a hideout she goes to once the sun goes down, but he doesn't have any idea of where that is. And by the way, if they make what we call a BS roll, he's not lying. It's the absolute truth. If the Garson deal's been done, for once they have no encounters on their way to something. And even if it hasn't been done, you know what, let's just do no encounters. When they arrive at the clinic, there's a line of people waiting to get in. Some are coughing heavily, while others have cuts and bruises that need tending. There are others that are in really bad shape. Chemical burns, radiation poisoning, broken bones, and even a few with tourniquets tied around limbs that are barely still there. Three Miss Nanny robots are floating around the room, treating as many patients as they can with calm, soothing words and a healthy supply of soup. It's obvious they're using as little of their medical supplies as they can, but they aren't skimping on the treatments. They're just not using stim packs on folks who can heal with some soup and a couple of days rest. In the very back of the clinic, a tall, slender black woman in a white lab coat is working on the more serious cases. She's got another Miss Nanny with her, acting as her assistant. At the moment, it appears that she's working on an amputation of a young man whose leg looks like a piece of Swiss cheese. She and the nanny both are speaking in calm, soothing tones, and from the looks of the setup, the only way this man could be getting better treatment is if he was in a doctor's office of the rich and powerful. She's got IV bags going, blood packs, and appears to even have local anesthetics to use in an attempt to lessen the pain. When the group goes to see her, she calmly asks that they wait until she's finished. If they offer assistance, she asks that they help the nurses with the less serious cases so they can hopefully shorten that line. After several minutes, she approaches the group and asks that they step out back to talk as she doesn't want to have a conversation in front of her patients. Teresa's probably much younger than the group figured she'd be. She appears to be in her early 20s, though her attitude and bearing suggest someone older. Her face carries the scars of someone who's fought a lot but has survived even more. Her clothing under the coat is patched and faded, but the coat is bright white, and it's obvious she changed into a fresh coat after her surgery was completed. Again, we're not going to build out the conversation here so that you can work it for the style of your campaign. Teresa will inform the group that she's been harassed lately by a group calling themselves the Seven Fingers. They stop by the clinic a couple of times a week and have been trying to coerce her into giving up the practice and going to work for them. Obviously, she has no intentions of doing that, but they just won't take no for an answer. She notes that in the past few days, supplies have come up missing from the clinic, and today she came in to find the Miss Nanny robots, who she switches into Mr. Gutsy's when she closes up for the night, were deactivated. She's pretty sure it's the seven fingers who are responsible, but she can't prove it. Insofar as the church, she knows nothing about that. And if the group wants to roll, have them roll whatever you have them roll for a BS check. Because she's telling the truth. She's never owned anything except this clinic. And even that is a deal where she just took over the space and put the clinic in. If she had to venture a guess, she'd bet it's the seven fingers. Now, Teresa doesn't know where the Seven Fingers are based out of, and honestly, she doesn't want to know. She just wishes they'd leave her alone and go bother somebody else. She also doesn't want to hear anything from the group about a violent or semi-violent solution. She's become a pacifist over the years, and the Mr. Gutsy settings on her robots are for sentry duty on the clinic only. 
She doesn't have any additional information to give the group. And if they ask about why she started the clinic, go ahead and work up whatever you'd like her reasons to be. I can tell you, Therese is probably not going to come up again, but she can be a source for the group down the line if you so choose. So the group needs to decide what they want to do next, since it would certainly appear that this Seven Fingers group is responsible for Chip's death and seem to be giving Teresa Boyd a pretty hard time. One option, and it's obviously the easy one, would be to report back to Victor and let him deal with it. I mean, he'll do it, but he's going to be disappointed that the group didn't take the initiative to do it themselves. He'll get the information about what the Seven Fingers did with Chip, and he's going to keep that to himself. Now, if the group goes to Victor for information on the Seven Fingers, that's a different story. He doesn't have anything. And, and that's rare because Victor tends to have information on everyone or at least can get it in short order. He's never even heard of the Seven Fingers and that annoys him to no end. However, he does suggest that perhaps the Missouri patrol woman you met will know something as she seems to make her way all over the city. That's their cue, and if they go to the office of Mackenzie Cook, she'll tell them she's got a bit of info on the Seven Fingers, but she's not been able to deal with them herself due to not having the numbers. She knows they've popped up over the past couple of weeks, and that they took out all of the other Raider groups operating in the six-square-block radius they claimed as their own. They've even managed to keep the super mutants out, and that is an accomplishment in and of itself. She doesn't know exactly where their hideout or headquarters are, but she can show them on an old map what the territory looks like, and the church is on the eastern edge of it, with Teresa's clinic dead in the center. She admits she'd like to come along and help them, but she's got a meeting with an informant of hers on the hill later on, so she can't do much more except forgive them the info she just gave them. So let's stick a pin in this one, and explore another option, which is the group goes to another one of their sources. They'll need to make charisma plus speech checks difficulty two. They'll get basically the same information that Cook gave them, but unless they speak with Melanie Zombrowski or Jesse Arnott slash Barnabas O'Reilly, they'll have to speak with multiple sources to get all of the information. Now, the group can choose to stake out the clinic to see if anybody stops by, so let's just go ahead and build that out. There won't be anybody stopping by while it's open, though the group can keep helping with the sick and wounded if they so choose. When it closes, they can choose to set up inside if they'd like, but Teresa would feel a bit more comfortable with them outside, since the Mr. Gutsy programming on her robots can be a bit... touchy. There's plenty of spaces around the clinic to set up watch, and this is another one of those things I'll leave for you to work out. I mean, there's rooftops, piles of rubble, empty buildings. You've got endless possibilities. And if they do this, it pays off. Around midnight, they'll notice four individuals coming from the west down the street. They're making no effort to hide themselves and are, in fact, being rather open. They're joking and laughing as they get close to the clinic, and they can plainly hear one of them mention that that controller we bought for the robots was worth every cap we spent. There are three Raider veterans in this group, and their stats are on page 390. The fourth is a Raider scaver, and those stats are on page 389. The scaver's the one with the controller, and when they get within 100 feet of the door, he raises it and presses a button, which is probably the point at which the group will act. If it isn't, use what I'm about to say when they do act. It's obvious these guys aren't expecting trouble. Their weapons aren't out and at the ready, so the group most certainly can get the drop on them. A speech plus charisma check difficulty three can convince them to not fight, rather talk. They're not going to say much since they're under the penalty of death if they do. So it's up to the group to decide how they want to get information out of them. They can keep making checks with the same difficulty. After three or four of these, they'll get enough information out to know where to go and who to talk to about the situation. 
They could choose to shoot one or more of the men in an attempt to intimidate the others into talking. It's still going to take charisma plus speech difficulty too to get them to do it, but oh boy, they will. If the group has more than four members, you can drop one from these checks, since the Raiders will quickly realize they're outnumbered and probably outgunned. Anyway, regardless of how they get their information, here's what they get. Kristov is their leader, and he's back at the base with 10 other men. The four they're dealing with right now are the Night Patrol. They're tasked with hitting up businesses and individuals who've chosen to not pay for protection. The base is four blocks to the north and west of here, and an old three-story walk-up that they got their hands on. If they're pressed for security details, they admit they're not really sure what the setup is at night since they're out until daybreak, basically. But they'd assume that Kristoff's second-in-command is up with his Gatling laser with a couple of the others working the perimeter. Other than that, they've got nothing. And the group can decide how they want to deal with these guys, but keep note if they let them go because those guys are going to come back into the picture later on. In fact, they will come into the combat that will take place later on. Once they've dealt with the scout team, as it were, it's off to the base. It's exactly where they were told it would be, and just as they were told, there is one man on each corner of the building with a larger man dead center out front guarding the front door with a Gatling laser. The four on the corners are Raider veterans, and the one in the center is a Raider boss. The stats for a Raider boss are on page 387, but we need to make a change. Take the hunting rifle off of his attack list and add a Gatling laser. The stats for that are on page 106, but the basics are that it's a spray and pray weapon and it only does three dice of damage. There are some advantages to it, though. These dudes are not up to talking. They'll start shooting as soon as the group makes themselves known and the gunfire will draw in the other members of the gang. That's where the guys that they let go come in if they let anybody go. So at the end of the third round, three more Raider veterans will enter. At the end of round four, the other two, the other two veterans on site will enter If this is all that's there because they killed the other guys, then we're done. If not, those guys will come in at the end of round five. Once everybody's there, this huge, bald, heavily scarred dude's going to call out, I don't know who you are, but you're not getting my stash. He'll start pitching frag grenades from the roof down to wherever he could see a group member. And since he's up on the roof, the group will have to go through the house to get him. Unless you've got a Mr. Handy or a Mr. Gutsy, which my group does. He's not going to be much of a challenge. He's a regular old Raider boss, so the group will be able to take him down pretty easily as a group versus a single guy. You know, once they've taken care of all these other guys. The stash he was worried about is a small box with a dozen stim packs in it, plus a bag with 500 caps. The group can take that along with the armor and weapons of all the group members they've killed. And for the record, I know I didn't put a nonviolent solution in here because, frankly, I don't see where there is one. While the group of four realized it was, at best, an even fight, these guys have themselves convinced that the guy with the Gatling laser gives them an advantage, even when he doesn't. So that's why it's built the way it is. And that's going to be it for the Seven Fingers. Insofar as why they took out Chip, they'll find a hollow tape they could play, and when they do, here's what they hear. Mr. Kristoff, I am willing to allow your group to take over the area you've proposed to me, but I require a favor from you. You need to get your hands on a ghoul by the name of Charles Temple. Do whatever you must to make it happen, but do not kill him immediately. You are to get him to come to the church on the edge of your territory and follow the instructions of the man you'll meet there. I am prepared to compensate you for this job with a little something extra. The voice on that recording? Tucker Malloy. So there's your connection. At this point, the group can either keep the stim packs and caps or give them to Teresa or really whatever they want to do. 
She will be glad to hear she won't be troubled by the seven fingers anymore, but no matter what they tell her, she knows the truth, in her gut anyway. Victor will also be pleased with the result, and he'll be even more annoyed by the continued meddling of Tucker Malloy in affairs that do not concern him. Okay, so that's two of the three issues I wanted to handle. Let's handle the third. This one's a pretty easy one. It's the building they went into that was chock full of synths. You remember, the one that they went into when they chased the synths away from the Lemp Brewery. They'll obviously be returning to it at some point, and regardless of when they do, they're going to find that the synths are gone. I mean, that's gone. G-O-N-E, gone. But that's all that's gone, though. So they can, in theory, take their time and search. When they search, they don't find any goodies they could sell, but they find a lot of documents with the names Tucker Malloy, Jackson Denman, Sylvester Owens, and a name they've not yet encountered, Max Jacobs. Now, I realize this isn't a lot of information for something that seemed so much bigger, but that was always the idea. When they take the info back to Victor, he tells them he'll start looking into Max Jacobs as it's not someone he's familiar with, though if he's connected to Malloy and Denman, finding him shouldn't be that hard. That leaves us now where we were at the end of last week's session, and that's with the group needing another job to do. And we're going to get to that next week because really we're at the end of today's build. In the meanwhile, check out our other podcast, Role Playing History. This week we take a look at four of the magazines we use for source materials for our podcast, and White Dwarf is one of those. Role Playing History is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. All Fallout role playing game materials referenced on this show are the trademarked and copyrighted materials of Modifius Entertainment through their license with Bethesda Games and are used on this show for entertainment purposes only. To check out all of the fine products, produced by Modifius, check out their website, modiphius.net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your royalty-free, license-free music needs. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod, on Twitter at Bad GMP, YouTube and Tumblr, Bad GM Productions. You can email us, badgmproductions at gmail.com, and online the website is badgmproductions.net. Next week, we get our group back out on the hunt with another job. Will it be the Ledoux location? (laughs) You're just going to have to wait and see. But that's next week. And until then, I'm the bad GM, Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the game table. 